You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today, we have Paul Moore, an exceptional guest as a real estate investor focusing on scaling self-storage facility, different self-storage facility uh, agenda. Um, I'm sorry, I have to repeat again. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today, we have Paul Moore, an exceptional guest, real estate investor focusing on scaling self-storage facilities. Please help me to welcome our guest today. How are you doing, Paul? Hey, it's great to be here. I'm so honored to be on your show, Adam. Thank you a lot for being with us today, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Paul, your, your background is focused more on the commercial commercial scale or commercial properties. Can you tell us what was the, the beginning for you on the commercial space? Yeah, you know, so I sold my company to a public firm 25 years ago, and I started flipping houses flipping waterfront lots. I built seven or eight houses. I did a small subdivision. I did rent to own homes. I built some websites to sell leads to realtors. And during that whole time, mm. I kind of wondered, how do you get, how do you get where the big boys play, you know, in uh, commercial real estate? I didn't know where the on-ramp was. Syndication wasn't that famous, you know, 18 or 20 years ago. Mm. Um, but I finally ended up uh, building a multifamily quasi hotel with a business partner in North Dakota to uh, serve the oil and gas industry as they were uh, in the big oil boom uh, uh, in uh, the Bakken of North Dakota, the Bakken region. And by doing that, I learned, yeah, I definitely want to be in this space. And after about um, a number of years of running that and doing marketing for them after we sold that organization. Uh, I ended up writing a book on multifamily called The Perfect Investment, mm. which is a humble title, mm. uh, not. <laughs> and uh, basically, it was about buying and selling and operating apartment buildings successfully. And so that's how I got my start in this commercial realm. And what was the upside for you to say, okay, uh, self-storage is more appealing for me as a commercial space on industrial and hotel spaces and yeah, as a, as a multifamily. Yeah, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a little older. I'm in my late fifties, and when I hit my fifties, I was sort of I was sort of tired of losing money. Uh, I actually uh, did a lot of investments that were very profitable, and I made a lot of money, but I also lost money on some deals, mm -hmm. and I hated that. And I hated the thought that you know I was speculating rather than investing. And once I understood the difference. I really wanted to be an investor, not a speculator. And it started to feel to me like I was going up against people who were speculating mm -hmm. when I was trying to buy apartment deals because it seemed like they were taking a whole lot of liberal, you know, underwriting assumptions and, you know, putting them on paper as sort of the future fact. And you know what? It turned out they were usually right because the rising tide has lifted all boats the last 12 or 13 years since the recession. Mm. But like Warren Buffett said, someday that tide will go out, then we'll see who's skinny dipping. And I didn't want to be a skinny dipper. Mm. And so I decided, hey, I want to find an asset class where there's not such intense bidding 
for all these deals. And there's a lot more mom and pop owners that have a lot, a lot more upside left on the, you know, a lot more meat on the bone, a lot more potential upside. And so we found that in self-storage, mobile home parks, uh, RV parks, and other asset classes that are in our current funds. So uh, right now, what is your focus on the self-storage? Like only the buy and hold or uh, buy and have additional like some development, like add a value. What is your actual niche on the self-storage? Yeah. So I wrote a book called um, Storing Up Profits, Capitalize on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self-Storage. It was published by Bigger Pockets last year. And we have four in there. We lay out four different proposed paths you can take to uh, develop a uh, self-storage empire, if you will. One was buy and hold. And that's we feel like that's what more what institutionals and more family offices and wealthy investors would do. So be buying a stabilized asset. So we, we don't do that. Mm. A second and possi possibly the most profitable but most risky path would be ground up development. There's a lot of downsides in that, but there's more upsides, at least the last decade or two that have made people doing that extremely uh, wealthy. And that's not our focus either, because again, uh, I'm really not in the speculative realm. A third way to do it would be converting um, an old building, maybe converting a warehouse or a uh, Toys R Us building or Sears or Kmart that went out of business or an old grocery store like I passed one yesterday mm. that was converted to self-storage. That'd be something we are interested in on a limited basis mm. uh, and because there's some risk with that. And then the fourth path, which would be the one we're most focused on, which is value add self-storage investing, which would be basically acquiring a an existing self-storage facility and going in and, you know, increase, improving the marketing, uh, increasing the rent to market value, adding maybe rental of U-Haul, mm. uh, boat and RV storage on that, you know, five acres out back that's just not being used now. Um, you know, it may be uh, selling retail items like locks, boxes, tape, scissors, selling insurance and getting a piece of that. Um, you know, uh, upselling, upselling units to better units, things like that. That's that's where we're really passionate about. Those type of value adds have made a massive difference to our investors and to our profits in our funds. I think one of the things and different on self storage, especially, is uh, database. So when we're looking on on multifamily, it's easy for us to look on CoStar, different like. M&Ms, different um, database. But when, when you're talking about self-storage and you want to analyze different markets, how your uh, in-depth look on analysis different markets if it's not your own market? Yeah, so um, great question. Uh, there is information out there on, loc on uh, companies like Radius Plus and Sparefoot. Mm. Um Radius Plus is really a, a great tool because it helps us analyze whether it's a viable self-storage facility right off the bat. So here's an example. If you want to, let's say you see an old Toys R Us store that's for sale cheap or Kmart or just, you know, basically a vacant piece of property. 
If you want to analyze that, you can actually go into radius plus and draw, let's say, a three mile radius around it and get the and the goal of doing better, in other words, lower than the national average of square feet per person. The national average is about seven or eight square feet per person in a, let's say, three mile radius. It could be any radius. It could be two mile, three mile, 10 mile, depending on the type of, you know, the density in that area. Hmm. But at any rate, if you do that and you're, let's say you come in and you're at 15 square feet per person, that's double the national average. That's probably not a good sign. Hmm. Uh, if it's two square feet per person, that's probably a very good opportunity where there's maybe some unmet demand. Um, another thing you want to look at is, is it on a main road? And what's the vehicle count on that road? What's the vehicle per day count? You know, is it a thousand cars seeing it a day or is it, you know, 30,000 cars? And so that's important. You want to be very visible on that road, not only be on the road, hmm. but you want to make sure you have great signage, great location, great visibility. And then last, uh, you want to make sure you're in a medium to high income area. And so those are some of the things, but radius plus is a real help to find a lot of that data. How you see the actual US self-storage inventory national wide? Like right now we see an like a like a big net immigration to the southeast, Florida and Texas and yeah. Georgia, but on the self on the multifamily side, but where you see this on impacting the self-storage, is there an actual direct impact when you're deciding your market? Because I think you're working national wide or you're focusing only on Florida? No, we're we're actually we're focused as a fund, Wellings Real Estate Income Fund, we're uh, obsessed with finding operating partners. We actually don't buy and operate these facilities ourselves. We find the very best of the best operators we can find and we invest equity with them. And so um, we are not as focused. We're not really focused at all. In fact, on the geography, we're trusting these best in class operators to mm. come up with the right location, whether it's Florida or Texas or South Carolina or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But right now, where you see is an actual gap on self-storage inventory in general on yeah. the U.S.? It's funny, you know, I can take you, Adam, to like Nashville and drive you around and show mm. you, for example, that Nashville seems to be overbuilt for self-storage, like a lot of big cities. Mm. But I can also take you to South Nashville, to some of the suburbs, and show you that there's big gaps, mm. places where there's a real need and there it's undersupplied. Mm. And so even within a given city and even a given submarket, it might only be you know, three miles between an oversupplied area and an undersupplied area, because people typically don't want to, if they have options, they typically don't want to drive more than about three miles to get their stuff. Hmm. And so um, it's, it really varies. I mean, I'll tell you, we, some, a couple of our most profitable self-storage um, acquisitions and 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 deals have been in little towns like ones in Beeville, Texas with 12,000 people and mm -hmm. another one is in Ishpeming, Michigan. Ishpeming, Michigan is a small little town in the upper peninsula and has like 3,000 people but we have a wow. 100 a 160,000 square foot 
self-storage facility there that is <clears throat> extremely profitable. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to say. You'd think I, I'd rather be in Greenville, South Carolina. Yeah. Well, we invested there as well, but those aren't as profitable. So because of the competition, it's, it's just really hard to say. I think because of the competition and the price range yeah. and so on. The competition is definitely a huge part of it. And and you mentioned that this is one of the things that drive you to self-storage as a competition of the multifamily, that you cannot make the, the IRR and multi equity multiplier as a self-storage. Yeah, well, you know, 93% of the um, assets, the large multifamily assets are owned by multi-asset owners. And typically those people have already you know, done the value add, they've already done the upgrades, you know, to get it up from <clears throat> the 1970s or 80s to modern, and there's not that much left to do. And so you've just got to fight to raise price and raise occupancy, but they're typically already doing that too. Mm. In self-storage and mobile home parks and other asset classes we invest in, they're often multi, they're often mom and pop owners. Still, yeah. And these mom and pop owners don't have the desire or the resources or even the knowledge to make these upgrades. They don't have to because they can get top dollar these last few years without making the upgrades. And so they're leaving a tremendous potential for an operator to come in and, and really make improvements. And the current market with the current recession, we're in the middle, starting middle. How you see the recession right now affecting the number or ret on returns on the self-storage in general? Did, do you see an actual uh, lower expectation from the investors right now or the sellers or both sides? Hmm. Right now, where we are as we record this, Adam, you know, there's a lag between sellers' expectations, which are still very high, mm. and buyers' new expectation, which is dropping as, as far as price. And so there's probably going to be another, I don't know, six months, maybe more, mm. where there's just, there's not a lot as many deals getting done. I think a lot more deals will probably not get done until that aligns. But um, yeah, I think that the profit potential as interest rates rise mm -hmm. and as the debt service coverage ratio is more likely to be, you know, to, to be lower, I think that it's going to have to drop values. I just don't see any way around it. Yeah. The, the, the play now is to see what's going to happen because eventually all of the private equity firms, family offices, and even lenders, they have to have the middle ground on, on, on the terms and sellers also have to turn their, our, lower the expectations so we can have like a close like a little bit uh middle ground here but yeah i right. agree on what you're saying but my next question will be how you see the self-storage uh, as a space with lending right now what is the challenges now especially with as you said high expectation high interest rate i know it's not like the early 2000 was like the regular 12 percent and 13 percent and even before it was more than this but how you see right now the challenge with uh, lenders, with the commercial, especially with the self-storage spaces? Well, self-storage, uh, second to mobile home parks, has the lowest default rate of all commercial assets. And that's what we've been told, at least. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, a lot of large lenders mm -hmm. uh, love self-storage. 
Um, and uh, even the, you know, the ground up developments that are in overpopulated, you know, over, you know, highly competitive areas, they typically eventually fill up. And we, our worst self-storage deal ever was in Bradenton, Florida, where two big competitors popped up nearby. And eventually it turned, you know, an 80, I think it was like an 88% profit to investors. And so, you know, like I said, it eventually fills up. So I think lenders are still really positive about this, but we have to, obviously we have to deal with the higher interest rates, which is just a fact of life. Hmm. As you mentioned just now that you're not focusing more on the operation side as a syndicator, you're more like a private equity fund right now. What is the upside for you when you're looking, as you mentioned, on as experience or professionals uh, sponsor or GP partners? What is the actual criteria for you to partner with this kind of uh, operators, especially that I understand on private equity, you're basically having like a second position on the on the property. Yeah. So as private equity, we're basically at the same position of, uh, like you said, it's second position behind the lender. So there is higher risk, but there's higher potential returns. So we are looking for operators that have conservative mindset, conservative underwriting, careful, you know, conservative debt financing. Um, They're not, you know, they're not spinning a wild story about the upside. They're, they're more likely you know, um, I mean, they might have a wonderful upside, but they're underwriting to a lower potential return. They've got a track record and a team that's been in the business, hopefully since before the Great Recession 15 years ago. Hmm. Um, we're looking, you know, we do background checks and credit checks, reference checks. Uh, we Google them. You know, we do what's called death by Google, where we learn everything we can about them online to see what people are saying. And we try to take into account, you know, the risks of, you know, them getting bad media coverage, um, anything like that at all. We we visit them in person. We drop in unannounced at some of their locations. I mean, we do everything we can huh. to do due diligence as if this is our own money being invested because it is. Because as operator owners, you know, we're investing right alongside of our investors. Uh, but what was the what is the main upside for you to turn from operation and GP to be more like a LP but professional yeah. LP? You're basically yeah. as a professional LP right now. Yeah. So, you know, Michael Phelps, if he would have magically, when he was a kid, figured out that he wanted to win 28 medals in the Olympics, which he did eventually, yeah. <clears throat> he might have been tempted to go out and be, you know, to get involved in throwing shot put and high jump, long jump, javelin, uh, all all kinds of other sports in addition to the pool. But he didn't. He was hyper-focused. And he's famous for his, you know, training regimen, which was extreme, you know, 80,000 meters a week in the pool and a whole lot else, seven days a week training. Hmm. Well, you know, he could only do that in the pool. He couldn't have gone out and done that in 10 other sports. Well, we like diversification. We really think that's best. We like the way Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have diversified Berkshire Hathaway, but they do it on the backs of specialists, hyper, extremely focused specialists. 
And so we wanted both. We wanted diversification and specialization, and it was impossible for us to do that internally. Mm. So we decided to step back and f- go out and find the very best of the best experts in these different assets and then diversify across a lot of them. Is there any part of an, an, an the actual career you find that partnership is the best way to scale and you realize this is a team sport i can do it i cannot do it by myself when was the actual uh, point you had this mindset yeah um i think it's when we in in 2017 we had a multi-family asset that wasn't going great it turned out okay mm-hmm. but it wasn't going that well and it just really caused me to reevaluate our strengths and our weaknesses. And I look back over my last 40 years, I mean, 35 years, at least, you know, in the, in the employment world. And I, I look back from that today and say, you know, I was best when I wasn't the expert. I wasn't the specialist. I wasn't the hands-on operator. And we flipped 60 homes and, um, or, uh, and, and I was not the best when I was doing the painting and the repairs and the plumbing. I was best when I stepped back a level. And I just saw that in myself and I saw that in our whole team. And uh, we've just done really, we, we've just made that, uh, the, you know, that, that that's become our profession now is being providing a great investor experience to our investors. Um, that's us, you know, that in addition to finding, you know, giving them great returns. This is going back to our, bring me back to uh, the usual question on the show. How you see after 20 or 30 years on real estate, your superpower? Yeah, I think for me, uh, my superpower is creating a culture of integrity, humility, honesty, where we treat, where we, we, we make it our highest goal to love our investors, to love our staff, to love our vendors and to love our operators. And so by doing that, if we can put that above making every last dollar, um, it's been just a great experience. I, I would say this, Jeff Hoffman, who's the founder of Priceline said, don't chase money. Mm-hmm. If you do, you'll end up compromising your integrity. Mm-hmm. He said, chase excellence, and then everything else will fall into place. 100%. Thanks so much for today. And before we conclude, uh, beside bigger pockets, how the people can follow your success? Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier that I couldn't find the on-ramp in the commercial real estate, Adam. And so what I've, what I've done is I've created a uh, commercial real estate uh, investor's guide, as well as some guides on investing in self-storage and mobile home parks. And everybody can get those free by going to my website, which is Wellings Capital, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com forward slash resources. And that will give them free access to these materials and more. And also your book is great. I have it on top of here. I like it. Thank you. That's very <laughs> nice of you. Thanks all to, so thanks, thanks, thanks so much for being with us today. And really, we're happy to be, bring you again to the show to talk more about self-storage. Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it.